everyone, I'm Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Even as the state of Israel appears poised to usher in a new era of politics, this week on Times Will Tell, we are looking back at the Prime Minister who, in 1977, caused the original mahapach, or upheaval, Menachem Begin. We're speaking with director Jonathan Gruber, whose film, Upheaval, opened this week. Gruber paints a complex picture of Begin, a self-proclaimed simple Jew from Poland, whose Zionism led him to become one of Israel's founders and most influential leaders. The film is well worth viewing for the star-studded cast of interviewees and remarkable historical images and footage. I hope this conversation with Jonathan Gruber whets your appetite for upheaval. Enjoy. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me today. Where am I finding you? So thanks for having me, uh, Amanda. I am outside of Washington, D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland. So we're here today to discuss your new film, Upheaval, which got its world premiere on June 7th, but will be uh, available for most other people on June 9th. Upheaval, which is a play of words, of course, on Mahapach, which is when Menachem Begin took power in 1977. What was the impetus of the film right now? So the film actually started a number of years ago. Rob Schwartz, our executive producer, was reading the book, uh, The Prime Ministers by Yehuda Avner, and was taken by Menachem Begin of all the, the four prime ministers that were featured and wanted to find out more and wanted to watch a film and realized that there were no English language feature documentaries on Begin. He was the former chief of staff for Senator Joseph Lieberman, and they were just talking. Turns out the senator had also just read The Prime Minister's and wanted, uh, and it was also taken by Begin. And Rob said to, to the senator, well, I, I think I want to make a, a documentary film about, about Begin. And the senator said, well, I support you. I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll help in any way I can. And so that's how it happened. Uh, about two plus years ago, they came to me to direct the film. And I think that in terms of why it's important now is with the rise of anti-Semitism, unfortunately, Anti-Semitism is never too far below the surface, but especially now um, that Menachem Begin's attitude towards it was to stand up, for, stand up to it. And uh, it's unacceptable. And it, it's nice to see that in certain places there are, you know, people who are saying anti-Semitism is not OK, but in far too many places it's being allowed to happen. And Menachem Begin was all about Hadar or dignity uh, for Jewish people. And it's important that people feel pride for being for being Jewish and to stand up when people are um, are being anti-Semitic. So that explains why you opened the film in about three and a half minutes, which is a montage of different anti-Semitic attacks that have occurred very recently around the world. And I was a little surprised at that opening, but now you've uh, explained why you decided to take that uh, that tack. Well, it happened. It, it was originally was not going to be that. It was just going to, you know, be more focused on Begin's, uh, Begin's life. But December of 2019, there were something like nine uh, anti-Semitic attacks in the New York area over over Hanukkah, and it just hit me very, very hard, and and made sense that what Menachem Begin has been struggling, you know, or was struggling to do, which is to um, make sure that Jews, to protect Jews, of, of course, in Israel, but really anywhere, um, that the, these are still issues that we're dealing with today. And it's uh, it's tremendously sad to see it. But 
um, it was important to wake people up. I think anti-Semitism is something that for far too long has been allowed to to exist in certain ways. I mean, we see lots of other um, groups who are being discriminated against and they are being, um, the people are standing up for it. And I don't want to say that people are not standing up to anti-Semitism, but in my mind, it feels that there's, there's less of a focus on the fact that, that there is so much anti-Semitism in the world and we need to fight it just as strongly as we fight any other forms of discrimination. So the film itself is really star-studded in a weird diplomatic kind of uh, way, you know, <laughs> in terms of the who's who's of Israeli and American diplomacy over the past uh, several decades. How many interviewees were there in total? Uh, I think we had about 30 so, uh, and it, you know, runs the gamut from the f- former Israeli ambassadors, Ron Dermer and Michael Oren, to Ambassador Stu Eisenstadt, uh, to cabinet secretaries, Aryeh Naor and Dan Meridor, um, the historians, Anita Shapira, uh, Avi Shilon, who wrote a book about uh, Menachem Begin and Daniel Gordis. So, um, yeah, there are, we, but we wanted to get a lot of different voices and, and people from all sides. There are people who, who are, you know, strong supporters of Menachem Begin and people who, who had other opinions of certain things that Menachem Begin did. I, um, we had a one Jordanian fellow, Gaithel Omari from the Washington Institute. We wanted to have more Arab voices, but, um, they just did not want to participate. It was very, um, Upsetting to me that people that felt like they were going to be co-opted into some sort of uh, idol worship piece, which it's not. I mean, if for people who see it, they know that we uh, certainly come down hard on Menachem Begin for certain things like the Lebanon war for Der Yassin, for even the settlements talking about the problems that are there. Um, so that was one thing that I wish we could have had more of were more Arab voices. But I, st- I think that had we had those Arab voices then the the concepts or the ideas that they would have said are similar, at least in terms of any negative things about Begin than what than what other people were saying that were negative about Begin. And I should say overall the film is very positive about Begin because I, I find to be a remarkable person. But as a journalist, it's important that um, we don't shy away from things that are controversial or complex. I definitely uh, sense the complexity of the individual, both as a person and as a leader throughout the film. It was it was very uh, well done. And I really enjoyed as a feminist hearing uh, female voices, because obviously many of these diplomats would not have been women. But it seemed that you went out of the way to bring in women's voices and their perspectives, which were sometimes different than than the male counterparts. So thank you for that. Well, it's, I mean, he, he, he interacted with women throughout his life. And so <laughs> whether it was Yona Klimovitsky, uh, his personal secretary, um, to Buria Ben Senor, who was just a little kid, but it was, uh, he was her uncle, Uncle Israel Sassover when he was in hiding, uh, in the underground during the pre-state, uh, just to the story about his wife, Eliza, uh, and his relationship to his wife, which is such a beautiful part of, um, of who he was as a person, not just as a political leader or as a, a fighter, um, but also a lover. In addition to the myriad of interviews, he brought in so much media, um, actual footage, historical photographs, even comics and cartoonish uh, sections. Explain a little bit about your decision to have the cartoon segment. 
Uh, so the animation you're referring animation, to? Animation, correct. Um, well, that was that we did it, I think, in uh, in three different locations, and that was in some sort of the the deep, the deeper history of his experience where we didn't have uh, footage. But I thought if we did it in a certain way, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on it. It was there, but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't in this sort of sparse style. Um, I thought that that it conveyed uh, the power of what um, of the story, and I, you know, I just was looking for different visual ways of conveying certain things. So it's not it's not nonstop animation, but there are a few sections where I think it's um, we tried to be creative, and I think documentaries are um, are allowed now to to expand, you know, sort of the the visual elements, and uh, and it was actually it was kind of fun to do to help design and, and work with our amazing animation team. It, it felt a little like Ari Fulman's work, uh, who has obviously taken the animation in very serious uh, directions as well in, in depicting Israeli history. Now, when you decided to create the narrative arc, how did you form it? Uh, what was going through your head in terms of, other than obviously the chronology, but what specifically did you want to bring out in terms of a theme? Sure. Um, originally, the the thing that I did not know about Menachem Begin that I wanted to start the film with was his time in the Gulag uh, in the Soviet Union. And there are these scenes, uh, these drone scenes of flying over Siberia, which are, are so powerful. And that's really how I was going to start the film and then kind of go back to sort of the chronology of his of his life. Um, as I said, but when the anti-Semitic attacks happened, I decided to change that focus. But one thing that needed to be weaved throughout the film was Menachem Begin's relationship to the Holocaust and that everything that he really, truly every decision that he made, it seemed was, and not unlike other Holocaust survivors, um, was, was filtered through that. His family was killed. Uh, most of his family was killed. His parents were killed. Um, and, and so anytime he was making a decision as a, whether he was in the opposition or whether he was in the leading the Irgun or whether he was uh, leading the state of Israel was to make sure that the Holocaust never happened again. He was traumatized. He was scarred. He wasn't in a concentration camp, but he had to run. His wife was, um, left, left to go to Palestine and, uh, he was alone in the gulag left to die essentially. And it had it not been for the Nazis, uh, turning on the Russians and then fighting them. And he got out and was able to fight in a, in sort of a, a, an army called Anders Army with Polish citizens. And then he got an all expense paid trip to Palestine, marching, marching his way down. But had it not been for that, he probably would have died in the gulag and would have also been, uh, considered a victim of the Holocaust. But obviously his whole family was, was, or nearly his whole family was destroyed. So I wanted to make sure that those, uh, that that theme was always, whether it was about the bombing of the Osirak nuclear reactor, whether it was negotiating the Camp David Accords, whether it was uh, blowing up the King David Hotel. Those were all things that were related to Jews will, will not go silently or quietly. Now, in addition to the points you just mentioned, perhaps one of the more uh, notorious chapters in his life is Alta Lena. Could you briefly describe the historical moment and what his role was there? Sure. So the Alta Lena was a, uh, a ship coming from Europe with uh, weapons uh, to help support the uh, the fight against uh, against the Arabs is in the nascent the start of the Jewish state um, and. 
David Ben-Gurion, who was in charge of the Haganah, which was the, the main Israeli fighting force, which became the Israel Defense Forces, and, and Begin and his Irgun were essentially fighting together for the most part, but in Jerusalem, there were separate fighting forces. And so there was an argument about who was going to get how much of those weapons. And Ben-Gurion, instead of uh, continuing to negotiate or figuring it out, decided to bomb or gave the order to bomb the ship. Actually, the commander of the person who was on shore who bombed the ship was Yitzhak Rabin, which is a whole other separate, you know, story. But but these are these are people who were um, the early the early people in Israel Israel's history come to form a very prominent part of its later history. Um, and so the Altalena is under attack. And this is where Menachem Begin prevented a civil war and that he told his uh, his men not to fire back. And unfortunately, 17 men um, were killed. People were trying to kill Menachem Begin. He came ashore. He gave a uh, an impassioned uh, speech on the radio saying, you know, Jews will not kill Jews. But he was it was something that stayed with him until the day he died and, and a real tragic uh, event for the Jewish people, especially in the shadow of the Holocaust. But Menachem Begin really um, could have said, "Let's fire back," and then there would have been a civil war. But he said, "We Jews will not fight Jews." So, it, so it is controversial. But I think Menachem Begin comes out uh, looking pretty good in in what they call the Altalena affair. And yet, often in uh, just. I don't know if it's urban legend or if it's a common knowledge, but could be wrong. Often the Haganah is considered the quote-unquote good guys and the Irgun are the quote-unquote terrorists. How can you explain that? Well, why don't you, why don't you tell me more about that? Why, why is that the case? Yeah, I, I'm not the Israeli historian. I'm the American. <laughs> I'm the Israeli journalist, not a historian. So I ask mm-hmm. people the questions. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that, that Menachem Begin was, you know, had his own ideas about things and he and Ben Gurion had a, um, had a personal animosity, which lasted for decades. And I think that that's, that's what figured into on some level Ben Gurion's decision to bomb, uh, to bomb the ship. Uh, I don't know why, you know, Begin is constantly looked at as the bad guys, the terrorists, as the fascists. He was fighting, just as fiercely, I, I think that, well, the difference is that the Haganah was trying to negotiate with the British to get independence and that the Irgun and also the Lehi, another militia group, were using violence. And uh, the Irgun, so that is a difference right there. The Irgun, their goal was not to kill people. It was to blow up institutions. The King David Hotel was a, a tragic example of a situation that went wrong, even though Menachem Begin said that we gave warning to people to get out of the building, the the call was not believed and almost 100 people died. And that's on, on him also. And he took responsibility for that, too. However, the Haganah was part of planning that operation as well. So uh, in the film, uh, one of our speakers says that Ben-Gurion was always really good at sort of getting out of the blame, you know, and, and blaming Begin. And Begin to his credit or not, seemed to be willing to take uh, to take the blame for things, the things that happened under his watch. And another example is in Der Yassin. Der Yassin was a joint operation uh, of the Haganah and the Irgun. Turns out the Irgun went, or was commissioned by, by uh, the Haganah, knew it was happening, but the Irgun fighters went in 
And it was a massacre. There's no, there's no question. There were, it was a balagan. There were terrible, you know, mistakes that happened and it was tragic. Again, uh, Begin took responsibility for it. And when you take responsibility for certain things, then you will have a reputation. When leaders of today, unfortunately, don't take responsibility for things, then there's always an argument like, I, I, I did nothing wrong. So people can accuse them of things, but they're never admitting it. And it's this, um, you know, really terrible model of leadership. So whether you um, hated Menachem Begin or loved Menachem Begin, I think people would say that he at least took responsibility for what he did under under his command or under his leadership and took the um, the repercussions for that, whether for good or for bad. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. One of the other themes that comes out quite strongly is uh, Begin's embrace of the other, be it Ethiopian refugees or Vietnamese refugees or the Mizrahi Jews from uh, Middle Eastern countries. And yet he was just this little simple Jew, as he called himself, from Poland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, um, well, he was, I think he was always an underdog himself, you know, whether it was being uh, bullied uh, as a Jew in Poland or being on the run from the Nazis. And uh, it was, you know, as you said, a small, a small man, but he was, he was a lawyer. Uh, he graduated from the University of Warsaw and he believed in the rule of law. And part of the rule of law is equality under the law. And he felt that, and this is one thing that I learned. I mean, one of the, the things that I'm grateful for um, is to understand the complexities of Israeli society more and, and the discrimination that the Sephardim and the Mizrahim uh, encountered in their first, you know, many decades, and some would say even to this day, um, you know, uh, against the, uh, by the Ashkenazim, that Menachem Begin felt this was unacceptable, that Jews are Jews, no matter where you're from, uh, no matter what your background, and that you you should be part of Israeli society in full, and especially after seeing these um, these families that came from different Middle Eastern and North African countries living in in tents in development towns when they had had full and complete lives uh, in these other countries was um, was awful. And uh, not only did he say, um, you know, this is unacceptable, but when he became prime minister, he put money behind it, something called Project Renewal. And uh, one of the really nice uh, things in our film is that at the very end, there's a song called Sion Tamati, which is sung by uh, Rem Bashari, who, uh, who came, who lived in one of those development towns. And not only did they, uh, did this money go to build, ha- to constructing houses and schools, but also, um, a, mu- a music school. And so Rem learned music because of the, the money that was put in by Project Renewal. Um, and so he sings our song at the end. So, and even Arab Israelis, you know, I'm jumping all over the place a little bit because there's so much to talk about with Menachem Begin, but I, I was shocked to learn that Arab Israeli citizens or Arab Israelis in Israel, um, were under military rule in their towns. And from 1948 until the mid 60s. And Menachem Begin said, this is unacceptable if they are citizens and they deserve the full and equal rights of citizens. Again, protection under the law. He came at it from a, from a legal basis as well. And so I think that that, um, 
informed a lot of his decisions as well in terms of his fairness and inclusiveness, bringing in the Ethiopian Jews, bringing in even Vietnamese boat people who are not Jewish because they were refugees. So um, the, it's remarkable how many people he he cared about and he wanted to take care of and, and to give them better lives. So you talked about his uh, legal uh, perspective, but there was also a lot of pride in the things that he did, including, I would imagine that the music school that the singer at the end of the program where he studied was not paid for by German reparations, correct? Right. Uh, German reparations were, uh, was, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I could, if disgusting is even the strong enough word for it, but to, to negotiate with, and I forgot the long German word, but it means to, uh, to make whole, uh, anyway, it, people can look it up, but it's, it, it, it was, the idea was that money would fix things. And, and Begin said, and many other people said, this is not acceptable. Um, we, no money will ever bring people back. You can't buy us off or, you know, it's not, this is blood money. And uh, this was another um, big uh, debate between Ben Gurion and uh, and Begin. Ben Gurion felt that this the the country needed the money and needed the material, and it would help uh, in the nascent years of of the formation of the country. And and Begin stood on principle and said no to the point that he rallied outside the Knesset, and there were these riots, and Begin was banned from being in the Knesset for for several months after that. Um, it turns out, you know, that and actually one, uh, one of the people in the film said, it says it very uh, poetically that both Begin and Ben Gurion were right, that one was, was thinking about the survivors and one was thinking about the people who died. And so I think that that says it, it wasn't an easy decision to come to, but ultimately moving forward, the fact that Israel did and still, you know, receives, um, things from Germany, which I think they still there is still something that happens. If I'm if I'm not incorrect, you're the journalist. At, at least <laughs> the survivors, if not the country. I, yes, we would need exactly. To check. Yes, um, that that there is a benefit to it, and we can't can't fix things. It, there's uh, Ambassador Stu Eisenstadt wrote a book called Imperfect Justice. He's an incredible person who's negotiated so much for for victims of the Holocaust. You can't fix it, but in, in small measure. Um, if you have a country who is who is trying to make amends, I mean, there are many countries that have never made amends or even acknowledged their role in the Holocaust. So um, if Germany is doing this, then negotiate what you can. And, and that's ultimately what did happen and what the Knesset approved. But but Begin was against that. And, and again, how the Holocaust informed his decisions. So he spent 29 years in the opposition before becoming prime minister for what could be considered a brief six years. What do you think his overriding legacy is? Is it the settler expansionment? Is it the Lebanon war? What would you pinpoint? So I don't, I, the overriding legacy is hard. I, I think that because um, there's been peace for 40 years with, with Egypt that people tend, or over 40 years that people tend to overlook it at this point, especially with the Abraham Accords and the peace with Jordan and like, oh yeah, peace with Egypt. But at the time, I mean, this was unprecedented. No one thought this would ever happen. This was their biggest enemy. And to, to look at Anwar Sadat and not only to negotiate with him, but then to convince the Knesset that this was a deal that they should go through, that people in his own party felt that he had 
betrayed them, that he gave up essentially land in the Sinai that he was going to retire in, you know, a nice plot of land somewhere on, on the Mediterranean. That, it, you know, should that to me is the guy he won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. So um, in terms of his legacy, there is so many legacies. But I think if we were going to look at one peace with Egypt has to be at the top. Um, in terms of the settlements, I think there is a, a conflicted legacy there. Um, it's unclear. You know, he he expanded the settlements significantly. Uh, the Labor Party was the one that started it. But he, from the beginning of his term to the end of his term, the numbers dramatically shot up. Um, it's unclear, right? It's a situation that uh, that is not fixed. Um, but also I think his legacy is in terms of moral leadership, in terms of who he was as a person. He never enriched himself through his position. He resigned when the Lebanon war, um, went, went south. I mean, in, in, in terrible ways. I mean, what, I can't think of a leader that would say, it's on me. I can't serve my people anymore. I'm not doing a good job. I'm done. So I think that there are many personal Qualities, in addition to the the things that he negotiated, in addition to the unfortunately the the decisions that he made that turned out poorly, but he 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 took them. He said that I am responsible, and to say I am responsible is something that we need to have more of today. Let's uh, briefly to close speak about him as a person. You touched on earlier how much his wife Elisa affected him. What do you know of him in terms of being a family man as well? So we, um, the, he, I, I'm not sure how private of a person he was. I, I think he, he probably was because his family, uh, all of his children, both Benny Begin and, and Nachum and Elise's two daughters, uh, did not want to take part in the film, but, um, but they did see the film and, uh, and were very pleased with, with what they saw. So I was happy, uh, about that. Um, just one example of how he was, how much he loved his family and how important they were to him was that when he was in the underground and he was the number one most wanted person by the British, when he was in hiding, he wasn't in hiding by himself. He was in hiding with his family and many and people, other people who were in hiding would move around and they would be separated from their family, but he wanted to be with them. And so to, you know, even under threat of um, arrest and, you know, and being killed, um, he, he was a family man. And, and again, um, his relationship with Elisa after being 29 years in the opposition, that the night of his election, the first thing that he says in the film, it's just such a beautiful moment. He says, the first person I want to thank is my wife, Elisa. And he quotes from, uh, from the prophet Jeremiah and, uh, and talks about how they were in the wilderness for so long and how she stood with him. And, and that's why when she died, um, he really was broken. Uh, I think that that speaks also to him that it wasn't just about, oh, I have to move on and I'm in power and I have to continue, you know, bleeding the country. Um, the combination of both his wife dying and the Lebanon war going so tragically wrong um, led him to to ultimately resign his position. So I I think as a as a person, he um, he was strong in many ways. I mean, he was unflinching and unyielding. But he also had a soft side, and I think that that showed in in his uh, um, in his being a, a father and a uh, and a partner. Jonathan, thank you so much. You really helped me see him in a fully different light, a more complex picture to the individual as well as the leader that we we definitely know about here in Israel. So, thank you again. 
Really, kolekavod, mazel tov. Thank you, and uh, that means a lot because that's really what we want. We want it's a it's a complex story about a complex person, and if people come away understanding more about those complexities and the nuance, then I think we can have better discussions in the future instead of being so polarized. Well, good luck with that too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 